As you can see, the uh, title of my sermon, I'm not a sermon title crafter looking for, I don't do that. Here's the point. God's intimate knowledge of and care for his people. Psalm 139, what a glorious text it is. We live in a world, folks, that, hmm, frankly, is going crazy. They're out of control. And trying to fool themselves into thinking that everything is good. But that's not new. You know, in John chapter 8, Jesus teaches the people that the religious leaders, and he's confronting them, of the Jews are really children of their father, the devil. He said, if you were really God's children, you'd listen to me, but you don't. He said, you're of your father, the devil. He said, you want to steal, to kill, and destroy. In John chapter 10, he says that all false teachers have the same intention as their father. Again, he's confronting the religious leaders who are abandoning God's word and trusting in themselves that they are righteous, that they have the answer apart from the truth of God's word, which is the only thing that can set us free. And they're very successful today. Seems like many church services are nothing more than a high school pep rally. Let's get all pumped up and go out into the week and then try to fit in with the world and swim with the stream of that. And then we'll come from an, for an, another emotional fix next week and maybe fix the pain and the sorrows that we gain this week. No, 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 no. Guys, that's not what it's all about. It's about truth that sets us free. In our world today, I... I'm not going to bog you down with a bunch of depressing things, although it will seem that way at first, because depression is epidemic with all its symptoms and consequences. It's reaching even our little ones. I read articles all the time where more, and I, I'm a middle school teacher. I've got students who are gone for months because they can't handle it. They're falling apart. There's no stability in their lives. They're depressed. They of lost hope. They're confused. Colleges are hiring deans of belonging and inclusiveness because in a world that says we're connected, we have one of these little things here. I'm connected. No, you're not. You're disconnected. They call it social media, and it's actually anti-social media because it's basically people just saying what they want to say and being mean and all kinds of lies being told to convince you that you don't need God, that you just need to follow us. And how about those people who are the influencers, the young, the beautiful, the rich, the attractive? What's happening to them? Are they doing well? No. Every week you read about another one that commits suicide because they have thousands of likes there. Everybody it looks like they got everything together and they can't handle life because they have no hope. Well, and everybody thinks, well, if I just had more people like my blog posts or like my uh, whatever, I don't have any of that stuff. So I'm, I just hear those words. I'm going, please don't bother me with that garbage. We live in a culture where it's easier to parent our kids by sitting them in front of a TV so they don't bother us while we do important stuff. Let me tell you right now, parents, the most important thing you can do is look that kid in the eye and 
play with them. Turn off your electronics and go play with them. Spend time with them. We tend to substitute busyness for true connective connectivity. I know that hurts. Not sorry. We see we have a world that's looking to be connected and they're more and more disconnected. Where can people go to, where can we point people to see that their value is beyond what they look like or what they do or how they can portray themselves out there in a way that everybody thinks, oh, that's so cool. How can we do that? To know that they are loved, they are treasured, they are known. There's only one place. Surgeon General said that there's an epidemic of loneliness. This week I heard that in the news. Our Surgeon General declared there's an epidemic of loneliness. What in the world's loneliness? That means I'm around all these people, but I don't feel connected. Well, how is that? I mean, you got 40 people in the room, and they're all staring at their own little screen. Of course you're disconnected because you don't know how to have a relationship with people. It's because you're disconnected from the one thing that matters. And we've got to get back to that. We're the church. The church, the pillar of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We have a connection with the God who created all things. And that needs to be our number one priority. Our world's still doing what Solomon tried to do in Ecclesiastes. Said, oh man, I'm, I tried to find happiness in this life, joy in this life. And he said, I tried everything. Everything that we see, everybody trying today, it's the same thing. And he said it was all vanity, a chasing after the wind. I love that picture. You ever chase the wind? Better question, have you ever caught it? No, because you can't. You're chasing an illusion, a falsehood, a deception. Just like in the Garden of Eden. You can be like God. So Eve looked. Wow, it looks good to me. And it'll make me wise. And oh, and we're still falling for the same lies today. Where are we going to find our hope? King David wrote Psalm 139. If you want to open your Bibles to 139, the only thing I'm going to project today is the text of the scripture. Okay? If you want notes, I gave them to you there. If you want more notes, I can give you more. But listen to my heart. You know what, guys? King David's heart here. There's nothing new under the sun. We think, oh, those people didn't struggle with things we're struggling with here. Well, King David, who's the author of this, was the youngest. He had all of his brothers ahead of him. They were the important ones. Think about David's life. We read in 1 Samuel when Samuel was going to anoint a new king and he was directed to go to Jesse's house, he went and Jesse heard, oh, this is cool, they're coming. And who got left out? David. Uh, that little whelp, he can just stay out there in the pasture with the sheep. He's not that important. And even Samuel stepped in the house and he looked at the oldest one and said, wow, what a big, strapping young lad. Man, he'd make a good king. And God told him, yeah, don't look at that. That's not it. 
I didn't choose him. And he goes down the list and there's none in the house, none in the house that God chose because they were not after his heart. And Samuel goes to Jesse, hold on, you got any other sons? Yeah, just David, but he's, he's that little whelp. He's, well, bring him in because we're not sitting down until, and he walks in and God says, that's the one. The one that's excluded, the one that feels lonely, the one that's left out in the field by himself. Later on, we read in that same book I'm giving out. This is all my introductions, so you know. David gets left home. All his brothers, his brothers get to go out to battle. They're battling the Philistines. Dad sends him. He's like, yes, I get to go. He goes in and he hears Goliath taunting the armies of the living God, and it just incenses him. I would call that righteous anger. Is anybody going to do anything? And his brother says, hey, shut your mouth. You just came to see a fight. You know, you're here for entertainment. He said, no, I'm not. He said, that guy cannot get away with insulting our God and his people. Isn't anybody going to stand up for God? And everybody just backs away. And Dave says, I'll do it. So they take him to Saul and he looks at him and goes, well, here, I have some armor. And he says, tries that. He says, I, yeah, I can't do that. Get rid of that stuff. I don't need it. I know the living God. My trust is in the living God. I don't need your armor, your spear, your sword. Give me a few rocks and a sling. I'll take him out. And he does. He was doubted. He was lonely. When he was running from his enemy, Saul, when Saul caught up and he said, why are you chasing a flea? I mean, his own opinion of himself, he wasn't thinking. I mean, he knew he was anointed as king, but he was running from Saul. Why are you, why do you have this big army chasing like a flea? He, he didn't have an exalted opinion of himself and he wasn't looking for it. And so we read, what, does, what was it that David, what sustained him? What was it that held him up? Where does he look for his worth? Where? It's right in front of you. Psalm 139. And this is the truth that can set all the captives free. Because only the truth can set you free. That's John 8. Folks, that's what we need to hear. Now, I want you to understand that if you're a believer, this is meant to be a comfort to you. If you truly understand this, this is going to be a comfort to your soul. In the midst of all the attacks, of all the denigration that you're going through, of all that here, the God of the universe is speaking to your heart. I know you. I know you. It's comfort to God's people. If you're sitting here and you're an unbeliever, this is going to scare the snot out of you. Because God knows you too. He's keeping a record of every word, thought, and deed that you've ever had. And you will give account for every one of them. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows the object and the reality of your faith. 
And if we're living by faith in the gospel or if we're just pretending, he knows. Should confirm God's absolute care for you if you hear this, the words of this. It should tell you this God who knows you wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. In fact, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the same God who knows David. There's only one. The Old Testament is the prequel to the New Testament. It all ties together. I'm a big picture guy. Some people dig down and give you every little detail of everything. I can do that, but you don't want me to. I'm the big picture. What is the big picture? What is the point? What is the point? Because I know some people, I've heard people say this who should know better. Somebody's depressed, somebody's down. Well, just read your Bible. That's good advice, but that's not far enough because you know what? On the road to out of Jerusalem, Philip went up to the Ethiopian eunuch and he was reading his Bible. And I love what Philip said. He said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, I have no clue, man. How am I going to understand that unless somebody tells me? And Philip stepped up and he read and he explained it. And starting at that passage, he preached Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you right now, Jesus said to his enemies, he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And he says, you miss it because they all point to me. If you miss me, you've missed the point of the Bible. It's all about knowing him. You read the Bible to know him. And now when you know him, and you realize how much you are known by him and loved by him, now you have a foundation for a stable life. You're not trying to be confirmed or affirmed by the world because you've already been affirmed by the one who knows you better than anyone. That's what this psalm is all about. And so we read in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I can't attain it. What a glorious thing. God knows what you do, where you go, what you think, what you speak. He knows everything about you. Better than you do. Better than you do. And you know what? To David, this is a comfort. God, you know my heart. 
You know what I desire. You know what I think. You know what I'm about to say. You know where I'm going. In fact, Lord, you and your providence have led me where I need to go. That's what he's saying. You scrutinize my path. I think it'll be interesting if we get to heaven and we get a chance to look back at how many times we were headed for disaster and God just kind of did this. He pulled us out. He redirected us. He laid his hand upon us. He knows what we're going to say before we even say it. And he knows that if we love him, our words are going to be seasoned with salt. We're going to speak grace and that which is edifying for one another. Because we love him. Because we know him. That, folks is the God who knows us. He knows where we go, and he's there. He knows. He's omniscient. And your mind and mine cannot comprehend that. That's what David's saying at the end here. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. He says, I can't attain it. I'm trying to understand it, and just about the time I think I get it, it goes deeper and deeper. It's unfathomable. I love what it tells us in Hebrews. So the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing. What does God's word do? It pierces even as far as the vision of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Old Testament God who knew everything about us, it's the same New Testament God who knows everything about us. Every thought, every intention of our heart, everything he knows. And not only that, if we love him, we realize that Matthew twelve thirty six, where Jesus said, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. We need to speak truth, and what we speak needs to be accurate, and it needs to be edifying, for we will give account for every careless deed. And I love how he says, you have laid your hand upon me. You have laid your hand upon me. He says in John 10, 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to them, them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. My brother Tom, at our men's breakfast, this is why it's worth it going, because Tom will be there, and he'll give some wisdom. I love it, because we always think about a believer being in the palm of God's hand. But not only that, we're covered. He has laid his hand upon us. We can't get out. Anybody ever worried about falling out of God's hand? Uh-oh, I might get too, too close to the edge and fall out. Nope. He has enclosed you behind and before. He has laid his hand upon you. The, if you belong to Jesus Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from that love. Isn't that comforting? He who knows you loves you that much. And you know what? I know that it's hard because we don't want people to know us that well. There's a few people in this world that know me really well. They're sitting right there in a line, the two that know me best of all. And what's amazing is that they still love me. I don't even love me sometimes. Me and my precious wife, 
we celebrated 43 years of marriage on Tuesday. What an amazing thing she's had to put up with. I don't even understand it. But God, who knows me better than her, still loves me. And that kind of always takes me back to that J. Vernon McGee thing. He said, if you knew me like I knew me, you wouldn't listen to me. But if I knew you like you know you, I wouldn't be talking to you. Okay? You got to love some of that homespun wisdom from J. Vernon. It's too high. God also knows where you go and is always with you. He is omnipresent. You and I can't be everywhere all the time. We try to. We want to protect our kids. We want to be there. To, but God is there. He's with us everywhere all the time. That's who this God is, who knows David, who knows his every word. So it says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, I try to fly away as far as I can in that direction. Or if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, go down into the bottom of the Marianas Trench, even there, your hand will lead me. Your hand will lead me. It won't only just help me, it will lead me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in beside still waters and in green pastures. He restores my soul. This is the God who loves us, who knows us, who leads us. And your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. We like to pretend that the dark doesn't bother us. But I'll tell you right now, if I'm in a big building and it's totally dark and I hear all those creaks, and you know, it's amazing how loud those buildings are when you're, there's, it's dark and there's nobody around. Anybody else tremble on the inside? You're going, oh my gosh, well, who's there? What's that? Oh my goodness. Nobody else. Okay. I get it. But you know what? It doesn't matter because God isn't he isn't blinded by that darkness. He is still there. He is still there guiding us. He still knows exactly what's ahead of us, and he is still directing our paths. He is scrutinizing our paths. He knows where we're headed. And you know what? It's kind of important because this, for the believer, is comfort. As I'm saying, this is the comfort. This is the anchor for our soul of knowing that we are known that well. In fact, when David sinned with Bathsheba, you know what his greatest fear was? Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You know what? He ministered to Saul, and he saw what happened to Saul, how he fell apart when God removed his Holy Spirit from Saul. He didn't guide him. He didn't give him wisdom. He didn't give him what that wisdom, and Saul was petrified please Lord don't take your Holy Spirit from me that was his desire he says I need you with me Lord I can't do this myself when Solomon was young before he tried everything under the sun that he shouldn't have he realized I need you Lord I can't guide this great people of yours unless you help me give me wisdom I need you Lord to help me Folks, do we live in that way, understanding that this God who knows us and he knows our weakness and he knows 
that we're trusting, if we're trusting in his provision. The troubled hearts of the disciples in the upper room, remember they had followed Jesus for over three years. And in the upper room in John 14, 6, they're, they're troubled. They're upset. Jesus has told them, I'm going to go away. And where I'm going, you can't go. So what is their response? They become despondent. They're, they're depressed. They're worried. We've always had Jesus there. He's always had our back. And Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You see, as a believer, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is one with the Father, one with the Son. We have the presence of God with us always. It's interesting how people like to go, oh, well, we need two or three to gather so that Jesus will be there. No. He's always with us. That was given in the context of judgment so that one person doesn't go half-cocked and, you know, get, you know, judging. We need two or three witnesses on a a judgment thing where you're going to have church discipline. I know what that's in Matthew 18, what it's talking about. But the reality is even when you think you're alone, you're never alone. You're never alone. God is always there with you. And then when he sent them into the world to preach the gospel, he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, I know that you can't go out and preach and do anything on your own. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But I'll be with you. With your words as you preach the gospel, as you go into hostile crowds and you're wondering, what do I say? He said, don't worry about it. I'll give you the words to say. Just go out and know that I am with you. What's the comfort of your heart? I am with you with you. God knows who you are intimately because he made you. This is important, folks. God created all things. I am a science teacher. It's really, really, really amazing that God has a sense of humor that he would do that. I've told people before, I just wanted to be a gym teacher, hang out and work out in the, you know, work out in the gym with the boys and play a little basketball, you know, coach a little bit. And for 36 years, the Lord put me in a science classroom. Wow. And you know what? I am so thankful he did because the more that I understand science studies God's creation and the more you see the intricacies of what he has made, the more you just stand in awe and you go, this is too wonderful. I can't even comprehend it. And the more that you find Yet you think you understand it goes even further. It's so wonderful. Here's how intimate God is with you. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there was not one of them. 
think you could spend two hours preaching on just that passage right there. I know that I could, and you know that I could, but I'm not going to. I'm going to hit the high points. God knows you because he made you. Fearfully means he carefully, he reverently, he with great respect made you. You are wonderful. When it says wonder, what's that? Signs and wonders. It's, it's a miraculous thing that God has done. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And again, we're, as a science teacher, I used to teach a lot of biology and a lot of genetics. And I'd watch those films where you get to see the unraveling of the DNA strand. And you'd see it replicate and weave back together. And it always made me think of what grandma's knitting. She's weaving that together. And God's weaving you together in your mother's womb. And then you take a look at the transcription of the RNA and how it's being read by the ribosome. And it's pulling in these amino acids and it's forming these proteins and back to bottling up and sending them out and putting and assembling them together. God is knitting you. When you were in your womb, before your mom even knew she was pregnant, he was knitting you together just the way he wanted you to be. And I know all the arguments that someone would come up with. They would say, well, what about birth defects? What about, you know what? That is a lame argument. Because you go to Scripture and you want to have your mind trained on what Scripture says. Remember when Jesus and his disciples met the man who was born blind? And his disciples, in their ignorance, because they've been taught theologically wrong, huh, Lord, who sinned? This man or his parents? And he said, neither. This man was born this way so that the glory of God would be revealed. Do I know how the glory of God can be revealed in all these other things? No, but I know that it is the purpose because God never has a purpose that is not good, even in bad things. That's why we can trust in the promise of Romans 8.28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do I know how that totally works? No. Do I trust that he who does it knows? Yes, I do. do I, am I saying it's easy? No, not saying that. What I'm saying is that God's purpose is always good, and it's always for his glory. Because you are a trophy of his workmanship. You are his workmanship created now, renewed in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. Once you understand who you are, you realize God made you for a specific purpose and you can go out now with absolute confidence that he who made you, he who has a purpose for you, he predestined it before the time began, he will guide you where he wants you to be to accomplish his purpose for his glory. You know what the root of our identity problem is in our world today? People say, oh, I'm just searching for who I am. You know what the problem is? They don't get it here. They do what we read in Romans one twenty one, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Instead of letting God tell you, that you have infinite worth to him. We've exchanged that truth for a lie. And that's why people can't get no satisfaction. Oh, I'm sorry. Sometimes my mind scares me even a little bit, okay? Because you can't find it anywhere else. 
see Ecclesiastes. Read it every week, okay, until you get the point. Understand it. God knows what you think of him and his ways. How precious are your thoughts to me, O oh God? Is that the, are you willing to stand before God and say, God, you know that I take your word and it's precious to me. That's what David's saying, God. How precious are your thoughts to me? Wow. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I, am, when I awake, I am still with you. What are you saying? He says, no matter what I am doing, your thoughts, O oh Lord, toward me. I mean, you know what I'm thinking, God. God knows there's nothing hidden from him. We've already established that. He knows every thought, but he knows whether or not you treasure his word, his opinion of you more than anything else. Are you seeking your worth in anything besides what the God who made you says about you? Because if you are, you're fighting a losing battle. You can't win that battle. You can't find any comfort in that. But when your comfort is in that God who made you loves you and he has a purpose for you, when you find your worth in that, then you will have that peace of God that surpasses all understanding. I love how Paul writes that in Romans eleven thirty-three. He's just talking about all this wonderful doctrine. He's talking about all this. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. David's saying the same thing. God, I can't even comprehend it, but I know that it's true. So therefore, every time the lie comes to you and somebody tries to convince you that there's something else, oh, no, you just don't understand that. You know, you need to do this or this or you need this or you need something else to affirm who you are. You need to remember 2 Corinthians 10.5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Remember, the goal is to know God. There are lofty things that are lifted up against the knowledge of God, and we need to knock down those, destroy those speculations, and not knock down those lofty strongholds, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive. Every thought that we ever have needs to be conformed. It needs to be transformed as we look at God's word, and we need to see it in the light of how he sees it. That's why we study the Bible, not to go, okay, I put in my 15 minutes today, did my deal, check it off. That's about as worthless as anything. Do you know what God said? Does, what does it tell you about him and what he thinks of you and how you are to think rightly? Instead of being conformed to the image of this world, being pressed into its mold, are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind as you read and meditate on and think about what does this mean? What does this tell me about the God who loves me? God knows what you love by your attitude toward wickedness. 
Hmm. You know, it's so easy. I've sat, I don't sit under bad preaching very often. It's only on vacation. <laughs> Carrie and I were at a place and the pastor was doing pretty good. But you know what? In the passage that he was preaching on, he skipped all the hard stuff. I thought, okay, he just, told, oh, you know, he was like a, a cheerleader. Oh, we're going in against this really big foe, but we're going to beat him. No, you're not. Don't ignore that as a coach. As a coach, I can't go in going, yeah, they outweigh us by 100 pounds per lineman. They're faster than us. I don't go in with this, oh, but we, unless we got five stones and a slingshot, you know, but that's illegal. We'd get penalized, okay? <clears throat> the reality, the reality is that there is wickedness out there. And God knows our attitude toward it. He knows what we love by our attitude toward wickedness. The world tries to desensitize us to wickedness. If we just show enough of it on TV, eventually it doesn't seem to bother people anymore. We get kids playing video games that are violent, and then it doesn't doesn't bother people anymore because we've been looking at a screen where we're doing all these simulated violent things, and then it doesn't even bother them that violence is going on around them. Do you understand it, folks? But David doesn't look at it that way. Look what he says. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now... Let's not run off into some type of Christian militia revolution, you know, uprising. That's not it, because that's not what Scripture says. But our attitude has to be that we hate the evil, and we're not going to be influenced by it, because they're trying to conform our minds to that. It's almost like there's a plot against us. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. There is. We have an enemy who wants us to distrust God. He's been doing it since Genesis 3. And he's still trying to do it. We need to take every thought captive to God's word. In Treasury of David, this is Spurgeon's commentary on the Psalms, which I love. It's free. Download it. Read it. It's amazing. I love Spurgeon. He says this, and this is just a short part of a quote that he said, God will not always suffer his lovely creation to be defaced and defiled by the presence of wickedness. If anything is sure, this is sure, that he will ease him of his adversaries. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. Men who delight in cruelty and war are not fit companions for those who walk with God. David chases the men of blood from his court. For he is weary of those, who, of those of whom God is weary. He seems to say, if God will not let you live with him, I will not have you live with me. End quote. We can't dwell among them now. Does that mean that we attack them? No, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Read Ephesians 6. But we wrestle against those spiritual forces in the heavenlies, the demonic that want to oppose God. But it's not the people. It's the ideals. Okay? So we have to understand that. 
We have to understand what Scripture says about the way we are to respond in that hatred of evil. Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God will take care of it. That's not our job to do, take vengeance. Not our job. And how many of us might be just a little bit inclined to take our own vengeance? Maybe you are so pure of heart that that never crosses your mind. Hmm, I wish that was me. I pray that God would make me that. But we also have to realize what it says in 1 Corinthians 15:33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. We cannot be unequally yoked with unbelievers in a equal endeavor where we let them influence the way that we operate. We're deceived if we think we can go into the their territory and we're going to influence them for good. God says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That doesn't mean we don't go out and preach the gospel. That just means that we don't go out and allow others to influence us because that, I've seen that happen. I'm a middle school teacher. My goodness gracious, it happens all the time. Bad company corrupts good morals. But let's listen to what our Lord says. He says, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We, you know what, guys? Some people, I think, have this misunderstanding. There is a difference between love, love like Jesus demonstrated on the cross. Do you think he liked it? If you do, there's something wrong with your thinking. He didn't like being on the cross. In fact, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. But love is self-sacrificial. It doesn't say you have to like them, but we demonstrate love by... Huh, if your enemy is hungry, Romans twelve twenty. If your enemy is hungry, give him a, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. We serve others in love. Doesn't mean you have to like them. But we realize when we were God's enemies, God served us. He died in our place. Therefore, we have an example of serving others who were who are enemies. Finally, God knows what you desire by your dependence upon his grace. Psalm 139, 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. How many of us can honestly say, God, please search me? Now, remember, he's coming off that section where he says, I hate those enemies. He, he says, I, I loathe them. I don't want any part of them. I don't want to be around them. And he is saying to God, God, 
if there's something wrong in the way that I'm thinking about this, search me and know my anxious thoughts. If there's something wicked in me, Lord, reveal it to me. How many of us are that honest with God? Say, God, search me. I want you to know me. I know yesterday when I was working on this all day, when I got to this section, I just busted out in that song, search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me and cleanse me from every sin and set me free. I just, I was going to break out and sing it, but my time is running out and you don't want to be here all day. Guys, search me. A little book that I read many, many years ago, Robert Munger. I don't know how many of you have read it. My Heart, Christ's Home. Anybody ever read that? It's a little book. Your body is now the home. And there's many rooms. There's the living room, the kitchen, all the rooms. And Munger's point is, he says, every one of us, if we think of our body that way, every aspect of our life is a home. He said, there's certain rooms that we want God to see. <laughs> kind of like if you come to my house, there are certain doors that are locked, and by peril of death, you would break through that door. Okay? Well, some of us are that way in our life. Okay, Lord. Hey, look here. I'm doing good over here. Don't look over here. Stay out of that closet. Don't go behind the coats and don't look behind that little box there. I got a secret for you. He already knows. Blessed is the man in, in whose heart there is no deceit. You see, David understood that his relationship was broken with God because he was deceiving Himself. He was pretending that God didn't know. Stop playing games with God. He knows already. Your fellowship with this God who made you and the closeness of that fellowship is contingent upon you knowing him and realizing that here I am. Lord, search me. Try me. I love how Spurgeon said this in the treasury of David. Exercise, and he's, this is a shorter quote, exercise any and every test upon me by fire and by water. Let me be examined. Read not alone the desires of my heart, but the fugitive thoughts of my head. Know with all penetrating knowledge all that is or has been in the chambers of my mind. What a mercy that there is one being who can know us to perfection. He is intimately at home with us. He is graciously inclined toward us and is willing to bend his omniscience to serve the end of our sanctification. God will do whatever it takes to sanctify you, to make you holy, to help you do what you can never do, to be pure and holy before him. And then lead me. I'm, I know I'm a simple mind, but my prayer is always your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, give me the mind to follow you. I know you've given me everything. And the first thing that he wants us to know, folks, he's revealed himself to us in his word. He has a book. And what we're supposed to do is know him. He's already shown that he knows us. That's not in question. But because he knows you and you know that he knows you, are you willing to pray 
with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. And if there's any wicked way in me, Lord, turn me away from it. Help me see Jesus, the one who gave his life for me. Because this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And folks, once you come to know Jesus Christ that way, to know him, to know him who knows you that intimately, then you'll echo the words of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body a living and holy sacrifice, which is pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. How do you worship God? You do what Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. Here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am. You know me. You have searched me. And you still love me. Help me to love you and to walk with you. That's the encouragement of being known and finding your contentment in the one who knows and loves you more than anything. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word that is true. Thank you for this psalm that reveals to us your great love and your intimacy with us, that you know us so well. And even at that, you love us, that you will guide us because of your great love. You will complete the work that you have begun in us until the day that we come to be with you. I pray that, Father, every one of us would find our identity in you, that we would realize how much you know and you love us and you made us the way that you want us to be and that you're continuing to remake us in the image of Jesus Christ, causing us to grow in the grace and knowledge of him day by day. And, Father, if there's any here that don't know you, Father, terrify them with the knowledge of who you are and then show them the cross where those sins have been paid for that they might come to you, to know you, the only true and living God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Glorify yourself through the lives that you change this week and help us. Guide us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.